Hello and welcome back to another episode of Power People and Planet. I'm Kumi Naidu and this is a series of conversation tackling some of the biggest questions of our time. Today I'm really pleased to have with me Luisa Neubauer and Sashi Kiran on the topic of grassroots activism and the challenges it faces in today's world. As some people say, all politics is local or all struggles are local. So if we don't get local politics and local organizing and local mobilization right, how do we get global justice? Luisa was one of the lead organizers of Fridays for the Future in Germany, a movement that brought 1.4 million people to the streets of Germany, towns and cities in September 2019, a talented community organizer, a rousing public speaker. She has since become a powerful voice amongst a generation of young Germans who are taking a stand for climate action, but importantly, are doing it in a way that forges solidarity with their brothers and sisters in far-flung places in the Global South. Sashi Kieran is from the Global South and is the founder and chief executive officer of a grassroots not-for-profit that provides economic opportunities for underserved communities in Fiji. She started the organization FRIEND. I think it stands for Fiji Rural Integrated Development, but she will correct me if I'm wrong, as it's better known, after Fiji's 2000 political crisis to create income-generating opportunities for women and men in rural and peri-urban settlements and villages youth and people with special needs, and to strengthen relations between Fiji's two main communities. I must confess that I had the pleasure of actually visiting and seeing the work that Sashi and her organization Friends does, and it's truly inspirational. She has been part of various global networks, the Commonwealth Foundation, Civicus World Alliance for Citizen Participation, and is currently the chairperson of the Organic Ethical Trade Community of the Pacific. And she's also a member of the Global Network of CSOs on Disaster Risk Reduction. Sashi and Luisa, thank you so much for joining me today to speak about this question of local activism. So let me just try and frame it briefly, right, before we start. The right to participation is one of the most powerful and basic rights, and far too often, people who are living in the front lines of various struggles at the grassroots levels are spectators when they should be central players. This is a reality that manifests itself in rich and poor countries alike in the cultures of activism that we have. These spaces often purport to be an opportunity for activists to engage with power, but in reality, these engagements and spaces tend to reinforce uh, current power dynamics. Luisa, you famously in another podcast that you and I were both guests on called it, what we have today is too much of and shake activism, right? And so the question is, there, how do we actually engage at the local level? There are many, many questions. Uh, what do we need to strengthen the voices of grassroots activists? What are the barriers to the voices of grassroots activism being heard and how can we overcome them? How important is the service delivery side 
of grassroots activism because quite often, you know, when you're operating the global level, you can talk in broad theories and ideologies and so on. When you're organizing at a local community level, you also can talk about the future, but you need to talk about the present because people are usually dealing with very, very serious issues. So within that context, let me ask you to describe each of your experiences firstly as when I when I talk about grassroots activism, what does it mean for you and what, from your experience, one or two highlights you would like to share? Louisa, would you be happy to go first? Mm-hmm. Since of you're course. the youngest amongst all of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me and having us. Um, it's a great pleasure to, to talk again. And uh, I think it's 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 just outstandingly important to to look at where is power, you know, actually grown, and where is it, you know, where is it made um, happening, and where is it not really growing but just implemented in a very unsustainable way. And um, you mentioned that grassroots um, or that activism that I used to engage in, and I think that many people used to engage in a lot that kind of handshake activism and i would just briefly like to make a make a point on that because i, I think there's a big tendency especially these days to include youth in in conversations to you know to bring them to the tables and i'm sure oftentimes there are very you know well meaning um, ideas behind it yet what i found earlier on but what i still find today is that people consider youth participation as some kind of decoration then. So it is something that you put up on your walls and you put it on photos and you put it on all sorts of flyers and media branding and um, you're considering that's a job done. And then sometimes, you know, youth voices then are critical about this and I think even to a certain degree that is wanted. You know, it's a bit of a rebellion that we all need. It's like this flavor, the spice that you put on your events, on your panels, on your shows and in your institutions and so on up to a certain point. And I think at that point that it actually that kind of involvement becomes something that could be transformative, it is considered inappropriate. It is considered too inconvenient. It is considered too destructive. And then, um, you know, people start talking about patience, that youth must be patient. Um, they start talking about, um, you know, all sorts of other aspects as in, you know, not not rushing too much, much, not, you know, being such a burden on the democracy or, you know, wanting too much and not understanding the bigger picture. And suddenly all of that holiness that is put on youth is, is, is re- reduced to this kind of naive voice. Well, the young kids, they don't really understand that. Yeah, they're not realistic. They, they they they're very well intentioned, but they really don't have a sense of realism. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what what grassroots activism for me, coming back to your question here, what that really means for starters, is that it's initiated by those who are engaging in it. So it is it is something, you know, it is an it is a, a first step and a second step and a third step that is made by those um, you know, who who are the center of of the struggles. Um and I mean, you know, a lot of the times I think it's great to get support and we, you know, we need to, you know, hold hands and, you know, find other shoulders to 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 lean on and so on. But I think at the center of it for me in the in the first moment is really um, the question of who is making the rules about this activism, who is 
um, engaging it, who is the center of it. And that is the local, that's the community, that's the people, you know, in the front lines in many places, it's the people um, that are going ahead and that have that bravery to change them. Thank you, Louisa. Um, I'm going to come to both of you later on to answer a naughty question, not the very naughty question, but just if you can reflect on your funniest um, moment of activism when you were working in a in a local community, not anything you were doing nationally and so on, if you can share a funny or uh, inspirational, but preferably a funny, you can do both, <laughs> but uh, I'd like you to just think about it because when I think of some of my early activism at the grassroots level, I also find that there was a lot of sense of community around it. There were lots of beautiful things about it that was beyond, you know, fighting for a struggle, the friendships you built and so on. But let me now turn that question to you, Sashi. When you think about somebody like you've done quite a lot of grassroots work in different moments in your life, what does it mean to you and why is it so important that we continue to invest in developing the capacity where people live the majority of their lives. Thank you, Kumi, and thank you for having me on the show. This, uh, These were actually some of the questions that made me really think, just like Louisa said, people living with disabilities, or we talk a lot about rural communities, coastal communities in this climate change spaces, but their voices are not necessarily heard and they're not even necessarily consulted there's a lot of assumption um, on the part of the power that this is how rural life is, especially when we're talking about, uh, you know, like the Rural Women's Day that has just passed or people living with disability or challenges. Uh, oftentimes, you know, having the show um, is, is, what, is what happens. I think it's, um, it's a difficult space because, like you said, you know, many of them are struggling. And many people are struggling with the day-to-day -day issues and it's not easy for them. But I think a large part, uh, the voices are really taken away by those in power. For example, we are seeing, like with coastal communities, for example, uh, there are bigger players there um, who uh, take the voices away by, you know, bribing them. Or um, if there are other country boats, for example, coming and fishing away, there's always something being given away or the powers as such, like, for example, in Fiji. Activism is almost nil. Uh, I wouldn't say that, actually. Um, but it's, like, really stifled. So you can't have protests. Unions are really suppressed. We have lawyers. Um, people who are raising the voice are immediately put behind bars or some, something or the other happens um, to remove them. And there's no permits given, for example, for uh, any sort of activism to even defend uh, human rights. Um And so there's that kind of stifling of power, but there's also stifling of power by corporates, um, by global corporates uh, coming into uh, places like Global South, uh, whether it's overfishing or taking away of the resources. Um, if you look at the region, uh, at the Pacific Islands, uh, some of the Pacific Island states, for example, the big logging companies and the power they have over the government and then they, the power they have over the community leaders. Uh, uh, you know, so... Even when there is atrocities or there are issues to be raised, there's so many powers trying to stop those voices from getting anywhere that that becomes a major inhibition. And then you wonder, 
And sometimes we see very clinical uh, voices, you know, like so it's all sterilized and then taken up into the into the lobby spaces. So there are still many issues. And I think the powerful government and powerful corporate voices are part of the, suppre- the suppression that the real voices don't come out. Sadly, this is uh, a reality that many people are facing around the world. I want to return to that in a sec, but I just thought I'll just share, pick up one of the things that you spoke about consultation and why consultation is so critical when you're trying to do things at any level, but particularly at the community level. During the transition away from apartheid in South Africa, there was a story about in a rural community in one part of the country where the local government had come and put taps in uh, places where people could need to walk less to go all the way to the river to actually, you know, get the water. So the taps kept getting stolen, right? And eventually there was a community meeting afterwards to find out, come on, you know, we the government, we put your taps for you all. Why, why, why is it being stolen? Stolen. You all must know who is stealing it. And then eventually the story came out is that the government didn't bother to ask the people where to put the taps, right? And whether that was the most important thing. But it turned out that at the river where people congregated, it was where women got together and shared stories and uh, got solidarity from each other. It was where young boys and girls, you know, kind of chilled and met and hung out and so on. So what you did was government was trying to do a good thing, putting a very important infrastructure, which is a tap so people can get water, but in the process was taking away something that people felt was more important to them, which was the social network, the, you know, the relationships they had with each other and because there was no, you know, facility. So then what comes out of a process like that, if there was consultation would have been, well, first build another community center or highlight a community center so we have a place where we can, you know, interact with. Uh, and that's just a simple example from my experience where the cost of not building into processes by local governments in particular, when they start doing things, even well-intentioned, can backfire. So let me just, as we move the conversation forward, just try and say that there are sort of like three categories of conversations we can have here. One is, how do activism in its broadest manifestation engage with local governments and the challenges there? The second thing I'd like to talk about is how within the broader sort of space of civil society, how do power dynamics actually have an impact that only certain voices get heard from time to time, right? You know, that's within our domain of control. That we can, we should be able to try and fix. And the third issue, which is another thing that we should be able to fix, that why is it so difficult for us to have in global and regional forums the voices of the people that are in the front line? Uh, and what can we do to actually make that happen? How do we get people like me, who when I was at Greenpeace and Amnesty and so on, who probably should have had less voice, Um, in certain global forums and more voice should have been given with the people that are fighting the struggles in the front line. So there's three sets of 
kind of questions. Right? So let's take the first one, which is the challenges with dealing with local governments themselves. Now, every local government is very different in different parts of the world and so on. But if I were to pose a question very simply, if you were organizing in your locality facing a particular local government, what would be, what you'd be expect from local government institutions today in the current context of the climate crisis? Is there something where there's a special sort of imperative for local governments to be doing? Because, you know, when people say all things are local or all politics is local, let's be clear, when a climate crisis hits, it hits people where they live in a locality. That's where it happens. It doesn't happen in some ethereal thing called a region or a or nationally, you know, it happens to real people. So uh, if I can just share that first reflection with you all, what should be the expectations today from government and how do we, with local government, deal with the problem when local government doesn't want to engage with, the, uh, with us? How do we get them to engage? Um, Sashi, do you want to go first this time? Uh, so in our context, our government, uh, our local governments actually are not elected. We're used to be elected we had a takeover um, and the current gov national government has been promising us um, local leader election for some time. So there is really people appointed to that position and they really don't engage. And it's really hard to get into that space because um, they're not elected. Uh, they're not people's choice and they just make decisions on, on your behalf. And uh, so it's still a very much like um, you know, my way or the highway sort of sort of thing. And if they don't cut out to the line to the national governments and, you know, they go and somebody, they're removed very quickly. So the whole, you know, the, the national power dynamics come into place. But for, like, for example, climate crisis, um, just engaging with them, and it's very important for them to see and feel what people are going through. Um Oftentimes what we do see is even though we bring the local leaders into these spaces where they can see, for example, for example, um, there is so much talk about climate crisis and um, our governments have been out there. Uh, but a simple thing like raising the floodgates uh, that would stop a saltwater intrusion into, into farmlands, which is a huge problem. Uh, but our floodgates have not been touched or raised for the last 10 years. Why is that, Sashi? It's something that the government doesn't engage in, and even though communities have been raising it continuously. And the issue is that floodgates cannot be touched by local communities. It can, it's, uh, legally, it can only be done by the Ministry of Waterways. But despite so many um, raising of this issue, it's just, it's just not being done. So every day, even if you take the government officials and show them, this is what happens. You know, this is how the floodwaters come in. Look at this, uh, you know, all these food security issues because the farmlands have been are being destroyed. Um, Saltwater intrusion is there. Somehow or the other, what beats me is it seems like people in power position think, yes, it's my power to make a decision. And that's not a priority right now. It's just I don't think suffering really gets into the decision makers or powerhouses if it doesn't suit them. Uh, because it's, it's a question I've been asking myself. There's some very simple things to do to just make life better, not only for people, 
but for the la- you know for the for the land for the place for the future and the future that we all are talking about a present we are all talking about climate change is something we are talking about and it's something so so simply basic so what happens in in the leader's mind when they're in a power position to to do something for the better but they refuse to do it or they're very comfortable in the nice little air you know, corner offices that they don't i don't know maybe luisa has a better answer than me but i really have been struggling with this issue okay luisa yeah. let's see if you can help us out <laughs> <laughs> um yes it's a, it's a good question and i think there is a big distinction of course between as a local activist working with democracies or democratic elected institutions like local government and not democratic elected institutions sure. i think it makes to certain you know changes the approaches as change it what needs to be done it changes the power structures um and i will come back to your to your question sashi in a moment but just because i think you touched upon a really important point of lived experience i would like to 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 look at that for a moment so if if local governments you know have and you know the people um represented there you know don't really have that lived experience of community power of local you know local creativity of all the wonderful things that people are you know willing and able to do once they come together um i think it's very difficult for them or almost impossible for them to imagine the locality itself to be a driver of change and not you know just people blocking stuff you know not just a barrier for whatever they plan to do and this annoying kind of you know um background not background noise and so i think one thing to, to what we try to look at here when i think about a local local organizing in berlin is that we try to really um you know speak up and and highlight and make visible what is happening once people come together willing to change something on the local level so that it's re- you know it becomes more difficult and more difficult for local governments to und- like to underestimate the people power there um but also it becomes you know dif- more difficult for them to portray the people as you know standing in the way of rapid changes that are needed and i think especially speaking of democracy that is something like it's often time you know a big issue that um leaders so called leaders um you know speak of the people as not able to change fast enough as you know always standing in the way of not ready for the changes necessary so when we as activists approach them they will teach us uh, you know and lecture us about the so-called people whereas we are you know the people and we are showing them you know very much what what people can change if they do so so that's i think one thing you know just really confront them of the realities of people power and of local organizing and that starts with really small things with you know sometimes for us in berlin it's petitions you know local petitions for changes and changes in the governmental structure you know where we organize and people here around organize you know hundreds of thousands of signatures and you know just a short amount of time and hand it over and it's really difficult from that point on to 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 argue against the willingness of people to do something um that is i think that is one thing and quickly coming back to your question of why leaders whether de- whether democratic or not are not doing what is so obviously necessary in a certain moment i think to be honest that the fairy tales that have been told and that they have been telling to themselves and to the people about <laughs> the inexistence of 
you know the the the, the crises of um you know the, the the radicality of the crisis it hits themselves the hardest you know they went out saying no don't worry about the climate no you know we have to invest in you know all the uh, backwards looking fossil um you know whatever companies and profits and so on and i think they underestimate how much that changes their perspective and also how much that you know harms their ability to see the reality as what it is because these fairy tales they stick to who is telling them and uh, they put them more and more and more into that kind of rabbit hole that makes them unable to you know face what's right in front of them So, Luisa, there's a, these fairy tales that you talk about, there's a word in psychology to a notion in psychology, which is cognitive dissonance, right? Where all the facts are there and our leaders constantly refuse to accept reality. But I love both your responses because the first thing that it shows is the vast differences between operating at the local level, right? So where you operating in germany where you got a, a quite a high level of democratic local government including so much so that even the ngos in the cities are quite often actually funded in part by the local government itself like in munich just to jump yeah but just to jump in there quickly because i think that one thing that people or like that might be underestimated there is that Once people assume that democracies and the you know the, the the democratic institutions work so well, they just don't see the need to do anything, you know, to to get involved themselves. And I think that is one of these you know layers um, where more facts about the climate crisis won't go through because people will think, well, you know, there's a big problem with the ecosystems and the stability of our climates everywhere. Well, but our governments certainly have a plan for that. And I think that is where we need to talk about unlearning, you know, unlearning, you know. Um, about the the assumed um, perfection of the democratic systems and of the assumed integrity of those um, of of those leaders in, in in many places and also in many democracies. That was a really helpful addition. So let me frame it slightly differently, right? Uh, people listening to this probably are living under very different local realities, right? Some people are like Sashi, where there isn't an elected local authority that's legitimate. In other places, there might be a local government notionally existing, even elected, but in elections that really were not effective or fair or inclusive. Uh, but that local government has very limited capacity because they are so dependent either on a state or provincial or a national level. And so you, that's one very particular reality which a lot of people are living under and then on the other extreme i would put and and you know at least there's a notion of transparent democratic government but the point that uh, luisa raises is not dissimilar to the situation we found during the transition from apartheid to democracy because during the anti-apartheid struggle, we had one of the most vibrant civil societies in the world, one of the most organized citizenry. I controversially say sometimes that we had more democratic participation under apartheid 
than we actually have under democracy because part of the logic that kicked in was, okay, now we've got a government, we fought so hard to have a democratic government, we go vote and they will sort everything out. Clearly, that is another problem that we actually really have to grapple with. Sashi, your reflections? Yeah, um, one of the things that one, when, when you said, uh, when you were talking about um, having a government, so in, in, for example, in our case, um, there's a lot of sense of self-preservation. Huh? So uh, what if something happens to me or what if something happens to my family? You know, you earlier said uh, representing like people like yourselves when, they, when you were representing either at Amnesty International or Greenpeace. You were very passionate and you could articulate and that was needed at that space to be able to be heard, you know, like, so that level of leader, leadership is absolutely urgent and, and required. And how much of that passion do we see, uh, especially in our context, uh, both, um, I would say, Fiji and in the, in the Pacific, you don't see that level of activism. And there are various layers, again, for that, because they are, uh, they are governments, but they are also... Uh, within community, some sort of a local governance where um, even the traditional governance system, the voices are not necessarily heard or the youth or the women would not, if they stood up and spoke, they would be the bad guys. So, you know, the, the culture of activism doesn't really, is not nurtured. Uh, and more and more we are beginning to accept, oh, it's it's something bad, but we can't do anything about it. And, and it's interesting when you talked about petitions, for example, we collected uh, 5,000 petitions and gave it to our president on uh, something about banning a pesticide and, and on organics. And our government has this rule that if you give them petition, you are shut out immediately. Like, no, like if you if you give a petition, it means you are anti-government. It's not about you raising an issue that needs to be dealt with. And uh, the president had invited me for a cup of tea and I went to his, you know, the presidential, whatever, the palace to... And I said to him, here's a petition we had collected. The prime minister's refusing to have it. Um, I'm not going to publicize it in the media, but I really, these are the voices of the people, you know, and you're an NCD advisor uh, for health. Would you kindly look into it at least and do the relevance? Uh, and the president was supposed to come to our office to officiate. He really wanted to visit, so he'd organize his visit. And one day before he's supposed to come, we get a message that president will not come because he will not engage with an organization that is anti-government because you gave a petition to him. Uh, so, you know, just having, uh, you know, engagement. So uh, it's hard enough to get activism going where people are accepted and respected. And, and, and then when you are continuously, and, uh, and for example, here, a trade unionist and a lot of activists, I just picked up, uh, there'll be uh, the the houses would be ransacked, and you are taken to police station, even if you're not charged. But you're sitting in police station for you know twelve hours, twenty four hours, forty eight hours, and you're not charged, and you're left to go. Most people, more and more people, would say, "Why get into this space?" You know, it's easier to protect your family. It's easier to migrate, and we're a smaller island nation, where so it's easier to move on and migrate to Australia, and New Zealand, and to say to hell with you know these these issues and so on. So it's not. There's space for, you know, kumis of the world who are raising the voices at that level. And then, you know, you have to have uh, storytelling, I think, is a great one. If if we can continuously get the people to tell their stories, 
And But again, you need hearts who empathize to be able to see the issue that people are struggling with when they are telling their stories. And I know a lot gets lost, can get lost in language. So having the right tools, today we have the tools of videoing and so on, and being able to tell, as I think as activists, it's very important for us to get those stories out there, whether it's in video form or getting the people, and then not just putting the people in uh, difficult spaces without preparing them initially. You know, they have to be very uh, prepared of what they could be facing, you know, the questions that could be facing, because sometimes they simply tell a story and they get, uh, like Louisa was saying earlier, you know, they get shot down in no seconds, um, you know, that you're an obstacle, you know, uh, to development. These are our big plans for you. And like Kimukumi was saying about the story, I'll quickly say we had one of the biggest cyclones uh, that had hit, hit the Southern Hemisphere, T.C. Winston. And we've had many, many cases where the donors had this structure of when a disaster strikes, these are the packets that should arrive. And uh, we even had a plane landing, uh, you know, from by one of the UN organizations to get school bags from another country when part of Fiji was still alive and, you know, school bags and factories were very much running. But there were toilets being built. So Wash Cluster got more money than uh, uh, the housing cluster, for example. So all these houses were like gone. And there were no houses, but the toilets were coming up. And uh, the toilets were coming up with no uh, connection to water or system. And we're going into communities and elders are telling us, here's a toilet, it's locked because we simply can't use it. And we're still living in this tent, uh, you know. So the whole relevance of people making decisions somewhere else and people who are implementing are not even able to take the, the voices of what they're seeing to their own decision makers. You know, the whole disaster chain was not talking to each other. So here you make decisions, you get donor money from outside and have all these things which are totally irrelevant at times. So I'm sorry, I'm just going <laughs> here and there. It's very no, no, funny, no, no, no. actually. It is yeah. so dramatic, but also very funny. What's positive that comes out of this conversation is, right, that all of us have a common situation. Nobody, uh, none of us are living in a perfect local government situation. Even where you have democratically elected government and so on, the realities are quite often you have a sense that those local governments listen more to big business and powerful interests outside of the community rather than local community organizers. And sometimes government wants to behave in a way that actually demobilizes people, you know, to say, ah, don't worry, once you get the elections, we'll take care of everything. But I think I want to round this piece up by saying it would appear that irrespective of how difficult it is to engage with local power, this is not something that activism can evade. We have to figure out how to engage it irrespective of the diversity of situations that we find ourselves. And one way in which we can do that, Sashi identified, is getting much smarter at storytelling, using alternative forms of media and so on. And then the other implied thing that comes out from both your com uh, comments is ensuring that even though local communities can sometimes feel very isolated from the struggles that they're engaged in, by using social media and so on, how can we amplify those struggles so people can 
make connections, maybe even with people in localities outside of their own countries, because sometimes the situation might just be similar in, in another place. But I want to move to the second part of the conversation. And what can, within the broad world of civil society, right, do we ourselves, by not being sufficiently aware of the power of privilege, male privilege, racial privilege, other privilege, and so on, that we are not being as best as we can be so that we can be as effective of whenever space emerges at the local level, how that space is equitably used. So if I can turn to you, Louise, and pose that question. When you look at the dynamics in Germany, for example, within the different parts of civil society, you got very well-known, high-profile NGOs like WWF, Oxfam, Greenpeace, and so on. And then you got a whole lot of local manifestations of people coming together, organizing just in one city and so on. What are the power dynamics that you see play itself out within civil society at the local level? And are there improvements that you might recommend? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, so I think something that's very standing out, and I think that's uh, obviously a case in, in many places, is that there's a tendency to um, to think you can outsmart the local. So, you know, it's, it's, it's local organizers coming up with an idea, with a plan, wanting to do something, wanting to change something. And then big NGOs or big institutions or whoever, you know, comes kind of from the outside and thinks, well, good try, but actually, you know, we have the plan here. We know how to do these things. We've been done this before. We've been doing this before. And, um, literally these are things that you are hearing with your own ears in conversation. Yes, of course. It's, 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 I think it's, I think there is a tendency to think, to, to consider yourself somewhat superior because there's a tendency, like once, once you, you know, and somewhere outside the local, because I think in a, you know, there is a, you know, there is a tendency to put a high, to put the local and the global and everything that's in between in a hierarchy. Um, that that considers you know everything that's happening on a global level so much deeper and so much more important than anything that could ever happen on the local level, which is obviously funny because I think anyone who's ever been to a global conference uh, can very much you know talk about some of the you know irrelevant uh, moments and things that are being discussed there with no absolutely no connection to to the places where where these ideas and talks are should be rooted in. So, but I think there is there is a you know, even if it's unintended, but there is some kind of hierarchy that plays a role here, of course. And so those coming from the outside, you know, often think that's what is, at least I experienced that they can, you know, teach people and tell people and lecture people on the local level, what is good, what is just, what is necessary. And I think oftentimes, you know, in Germany, a lot of the struggles that we have on the local level are about, you know, stopping highways, stopping coal mines, stopping gas pipelines and all these things. So it's right now, it's a lot about blocking the infrastructure that we don't need anymore. And there is the there's other side to that where it's about, you know, getting what we need, bicycle lanes and, and parks and, and and space for the children. But I think there is right now a focus on the blocking side. And it's interesting what I what I witness a lot is that um there's a local struggle to to, I don't know, protect the forest. And um and, and NGOs from the outside would come in and in in the first moment uh claim that this is impossible and uh, it's 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 so funny because you know there are these people then 
looking at the locals who've been defending forests for so long um doing this with their hearts and their souls and everything and you know growing an identity around that um proving with every you know with every inch of their body that this is possible to protect because that's what they've been doing and then they that they, they're being told that you know from the outside view it's 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 uh, it appears impossible so i think um talking of privilege and power i think there is um there is not just some magic but there is some wisdom and trusting local um locals local experiences local lived experiences and everything that comes along with it um i think that's that's one thing and maybe if i if i can add another aspect of course about privilege um before you go to privilege if you can just hold on on that just to say that when you said that people say ah it's it's impossible to achieve that i've 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 seen that happen uh you know even when i was in the big organizations i but i've experienced more from the other side but i just before you go on to talking about the question of privilege uh just to say that there's a, a proverb some words that i uh, attributed to nelson mandela when he supposedly said it always seems impossible until it is done right and and you know uh, what appears impossible is just because somebody didn't have the vision to believe and dream and uh push for a reality that is better and different but uh, back to you luisa on the question of privilege yes i think there's a bit of a forgotten privilege and that's the privilege of being able to choose your fight so you know we say it so lightly you know people in the everyday struggles they say okay i got to choose my fights and i think there is something deeper behind it which is people on the local level struggling for their livelihoods, especially in the front lines, but also in different nuances around the world, they cannot choose their fights. The fight is what they live on or what they live the from. The fights choose you. Yes, the, 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 fight, the fights, they, they find you and they will just be there. And I think there is a tendency of, you know, you know NGOs or larger organizations to, to pick their battles, you know, in order what seems winnable you know, we need another win. So we choose something that is winnable here. And I think, you know, that's that's the, the marketing behind it and it's, you know, the stories to tell and you can't always lose and so on. And um, and that again, you know, is, is something that we can really learn from the people on the local. They don't think about it that way for a reason because you are there, the fight is there and you're giving it everything you can and that's where the magic happens. That's where people, you know, prove what is possible um, and what can be made possible coming way from the impossible spectrum there. Well, well said. In fact, uh, before I turn to you, Sashi, for your reflections of how this plays out in the Pacific, um, you know, this thing about winnable uh, is is a disease we have to look at. And I don't think this winnable disease, that is, I've seen it mainly with big uh, logo type organizations where sometimes there will be a fight that absolutely should be had, right? It's a just thing for the record. Even if you know you're going to lose that fight, right? Sometimes it's the right thing. I mean, I've been involved in more fights in my life that I've lost than fights that I've won in terms of struggle, right? And and I think basically the logic, the reality is that too many people within our own movements have got content with winning battles but losing the overall war for justice. 
And that is something that we need to ch challenge quite strongly. Sashi, does that resonate with your experience in the Pacific? And just for those that if you don't know, you know, for small island states all over the world, and I'm sure it's not different from the Pacific, you see a very difficult and painful thing sometimes about how local people have so much, so limited power compared to big, well, international resourced NGOs that actually come into those spaces. Uh, over to you, Sashi. Yes, absolutely. Um, talking about the winnables, um, uh, like you said, fight doesn't choose us. We, there's, the realities on the ground is so much stronger. And uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, the peacefulness, heartfulness leader, Kamlesh Patel said something, that when a terrorist bakes a bomb uh, to do maximum destruction, within no time, they are able to spread it to all terrorist organizations because they have one common goal of destruction. Here we are, we, even when we are you know, about to win a, win a goal, like instead of working together, I think in larger organizations, there are a lot of uh, career NGO workers rather than the passionate or people who, who are there for a reason or for a cause, for example. And I think, Kumi, in your, in your days, you're, I mean, you've been a trailblazer in so many things, but I remember you, when you started working from NGOs and working with corporate, you were one of the first ones who, when we started doing corporate citizenship and, and that sort of thing, and that was not very accepted at that time. But we as organizations, how are we maximizing our goals? Uh, are we working with local partners, international partners, corporate, whatever is required wherever, to get that vision forward. Um, in, the, in the global world with COPs and all these constant global conversations, we have too many people just wanting to be in these events. We see almost a career or you know, funding issues or you know, people trying to put a voice out there. Not necessarily. And I'm seeing that in a lot of these COP conversations, that some of the real issues are getting lost and you have year after year the same kind of conversations which are not moving forward. So, and realities of smaller island nations and our and and the poverty and the resource allocation, for example. And one of the reasons a lot of local governments turn to corporates is because there's not no not not enough resource allocation by the national governments or you know like even the donors who speak so much about it. So when people have to go to these bigger corporations or bigger corporations are able to put money in a community, they're also able to shut the community up in, in terms of issues. So I think in, in NGO space or in the civil society space, it's very important for us to engage, you know, at the local level and, and with social media and so much virtual power now, we should be able to work with the global uh, networks and corporates and whoever are, 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 you know, our supporters, even even the faith-based organizations, because we we are too territorial to win win big wins. Uh, the power of the people in the faith groups, in civil society, in good corporate citizenship, we are huge in numbers. If we stopped our territorialism and we are focused on one goal, I think, and we and we are able to drop our barriers like. Kumi was doing, and you know, when we we're talking about corporate citizenship and civicus, then you are able to push yourselves to be able to get your message across to so many more to become an ocean or a tsunami 
to deal with the powers that are holding power and holding us to ransom, maybe. No, thanks for th th thanks so much, Sashi, uh, uh, for for raising that because I just want to drill down on that a bit because basically, especially at local government level, but at all levels of activism today, we don't have a choice but to engage with corporate power, and at the local level. Uh, and we engage with corporate power for a whole range of things, sometimes to change a policy, sometimes to stop them from doing something, sometimes to get them to start doing something that they're not doing. But at the local level is where actually uh, there are there is no reason for local communities to be apologetic to say to government to corporate entities that are making that are drawing the labor from a community that are drawing the profit from a community that they should not be putting something back immediately in terms of community needs and community infrastructure and so on so it was in that sense that i will still today say while recognizing all the contradictions of the corporate sector that nobody should feel ashamed especially at the local level to push corporations to give back to the people in the short term, notwithstanding all their uh, contradictions of power. Now, before we run out of time, I want to do a go back and forth on three questions, right? So the first one was, uh, everybody says now that the contract between rich and poor Uh, between governments and citizens is broken, right? If you had the power to draft one clause, right, in a new eco-social contract, what would be that that you do? Quick response. Sashi, which would, what would you focus on from your perspective? What would be a non-negotiable commitment that governments should make to their people right now? People, unless and until they have mass um, endorsement of people, it should not go forward. I don't know if that makes sense, but, uh, you know, unless we have had actually the voices of the, the youth, the disabled, the women, the men, you know, no decision or no, it should not become a legislation if it's, if it's not consultation with the people. Okay, so I want to just say it back to you just so we can pull this up. So you are saying that even if there's an election, if government is making significant policy, they should design participatory processes by which there is real citizen input into the particular important pieces of legislation rather than seeing a victory at the elections as a blank check to rule for the next four or five years without any interaction with the people. Absolutely. You articulated it beautifully. Louisa? One thing, of course, globally spoken, I think governments need to forget the depth, like to, to um, cancel the depth of um, the global south. Um, and the most affected uh, places. Speaking of the of the global north. Um, Thank you so much for saying that. Please keep saying it over and over again. Some of us have been saying it for more than 40 years, but we still haven't succeeded. Thank you for pushing that from where you are. People had a big, 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 big action today at our uh, Ministry of Finance today. They actually went inside and um, had a protest inside um, our minister's um, office for, for cancelling the debt. Um, and he recognized Wonderful. that. I think, um, yeah, I think there is a big and powerful movement growing from young people, from from Fridays for Future, but many others as well, um, led by the most affected 
around the, the, the question of cancelling the debt. So that's something... I hope I don't get blamed for that protest, given that I was there in Germany last week. <laughs> hope nobody says I, think, I came... I think they, will, <laughs> they might give you a ring and track it back to you, yes. Um, <laughs> weren't you the guy who came up? No. Um, and, uh, of course, there is, a, um, there is a second thing, I think, that's about ecocide, really, which um, I think could change so much in terms of our... Um, like I mean, the 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 the, the leaders' uh, relationship to to nature and livelihoods. I think something along the line of ecocide law, um, something about or a fundamental right to climate justice. But I think there needs to be some bigger, bigger, um, you know, appeal there. And I'm speaking as someone who has fought for a fundamental right to climate justice in Germany. Um, but I see there's so much more that needs to be done. Great. Thank you so much. Now, very, very quickly on a scale of one to 10, uh, just how good you think activist movements are doing to make sure that the most grassroots of voices are heard in the most powerful of forums. If you think we're doing well, excellently, say 10. If you think we're doing really bad, zero or wherever we are. So just the assessment. Sashi, where do you think? Just a quick uh, Four think? to How five, I would say. Four to five. Uh, in the in the in the bigger ocean, we are losing our fish to bigger countries. There's so much going on that the hard talk is not even coming out. Like we're not even speaking about some of the bigger issues in the global forum. We're talking about the oceans, but we're not talking about the ocean livelihoods, for example. So I would say four to five. I think there's a huge work that needs to be done. I would Thank even you. speak of something like I feel like I'm not the one to tell because obviously whenever I enter those rooms, I still belong to the more privileged ones, um, given where I'm from, given my skin color, given, you know, uh, my language and everything. But I think, honestly, maybe a one or a two, just thinking about how much of the stories are there that have not been told, how much of the lives will never, you know, be heard there. But I think, Sasha, you made such an important point about what it takes for people to be able to tell their stories. And that is not about putting people into a room, but preparing that, equipping people with what they need to not, you know, make it this other traumata that people will take from there. But this moment where actually power can be spoken and power can be uh, built from these stories, from that truth that people are telling there. Okay. I let you get away without telling a funny story because we are out of time. <laughs> but, but, but if you... Did you have one, Luisa, quickly? I really did actually quickly? have one. I thought Go about it, it long Go and hard. Okay. You know, when the pandemic hit, we were a bit, we were struggling. There were big of, big restrictions in Germany and we, it was five years Paris agreement. Um, and we really wanted to, to, to make a call for fight for 1.5. And so globally with Fridays for Future, we came up with this idea to put lights out um, in front of, you know, big monuments, which, you know, would then say fight for 1.5 because it was that time that on many levels, people kind of gave up on the 1.5 degree limit of global heating and kind of said, you know, especially in the privileged places, you know, you know, two might, wait as, might do as well. And so we said, we need to, we need to do like a, an appeal. We need to create those photos. Yet people were so hesitant to come out to those things. They want, didn't want to gather. They didn't want to, you know, be outside, you know, confronted with possible COVID things and so on. And so we were trying really hard to get people to come there. And of course we had distances, you know, people were wearing masks. It was very safe, but people were kind of hesitant. Turned out the most effective tool that we ever had on a local level in Berlin to mobilize people to come to any place at any given time, dating apps. 
the moment <laughs> that we went on these dating apps and we all created an account and we all went, hi, do you want to go out for a walk and talk? And, um, you know, you could meet me at the Brandenburg Gate at that specific point at that specific time. <laughs> and wow, there was a crowd. And you know what? I think people really enjoyed it because they had this moment of purpose and they had this big experience outside and they were all so excited about finding that one person that they wanted to come along with. And I do think that some very, you know, amazing love stories were built on that very day that we fought for 1.5 <laughs> at the Brandenburg Gate. <laughs> let, 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 let's amazing. hope a few people, a few people listening who found each other will will share that uh, share their stories. Sashi, do you have anything brief to end with? Well, yes, I think there is um, uh, what you said in terms of uh, uh, many a times we see that, especially when elections happen. Um, and people are just, you know, the leaders think, oh, here's however the election's done, whether it's uh, by a lot of giveaways, a lot of uh, however they're able to win on, on that voting day uh, in our context and in, we see in the region. And we also see that some of our leaders are bought and sold easily, even in some of the UN voting systems and so on, because of where we are situated and because of the power, global power dynamics. And I think... We are losing too much uh, in this big ocean. For example, whoever you think, whether it's Japan or, you know, people wanting to put their nuclear waste in the Pacific or China coming and wanting to overfish the Pacific. There's so much that the global powers are fighting for in terms of resources from the Pacific that we even see the Pacific leaders uh, feeling or, or, or quite, quite powerless or quite voiceless in a, in a lot of these global spaces who they are supposed to represent. Whereas when they come to the national level, they're actually suppressing people because they are these big boys in the region trying to take as much resource away as possible. So it's absolutely crucial and we have to find a way that, uh, you know, there's mass citizen voices without losing, you know, like people are constantly fearful of losing themselves, their families, their uh, resources. Almost like when, when I hear about the struggles of the apartheid and how things were, but in a very modern context, it's just so glossified um, that these conversations are so needed. And I thank you for making this happen. And I hope that we are able to take it to an action level um, across civil society to be able to say, well, this is our focus and we all need to get collectively to achieve it instead of being territorial or cutting, you know, cutting here and there. Thank you, Kumi, and thank you, Luisa. Sashi, Luisa, thank you so, so very much for sharing your wisdom, your thoughts and your perspectives. Uh, what is so clear from what you both say is that the challenges are huge, but in fact, the possibilities are also huge. So long as we are creative, constantly pushing for more space and participation, we don't need to be pessimistic and uh, lacking in hope. And that for us to be able to harness the full power of creative participation to have the kind of impact that we need means that we also have to do it with fun, right? I mean, the, the, the app, the dating app idea, I think I liked a lot because it's about just connecting with where people are at and not being boring activists, projecting our consciousness on the people, but understanding that activism is understanding where people are and bringing them towards us in a, a thoughtful and meaningful way. So once again, thank you so much. And to our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this dis discussion. Please don't forget to follow, like, and subscribe. Your support makes a huge difference. Please share it with others 
in your network and see you next time. Thank you.